Welcome or welcome back to the company of the cat. Hi. So today we're going to talk about the class of titans all of us are waiting for. Euron versus Victarion. Kinslaying, specifically fratricides, is a very prominent pattern in the books. In every major event and story, we see that kinslaying, along with the breaking of guest right, is one of the worst moral crimes in Martin's world. No man is as accursed as the kinslayer. Even in the current timeline, we have already seen one very important fratricide, Stannis killing Renly. In Stannis' situation, we can see that he wasn't aware of the murder exactly, but in Victarion's case, I'm fairly sure he will knowingly kill Euron, most likely dying himself in the process. Before any squid talk, I want to talk about why stories about siblings are such a great tool for storytelling and crafting, because I love good storytelling. Stories involving sibling rivalries are present in every culture in mythology, folklore, and literature because they tap into fundamental aspects of human nature, relationships, and society. Sibling relationships are universal experiences that most people can relate to. Almost everyone has siblings or has observed sibling dynamics, making these stories relatable and relevant across cultures. They can evoke a wide range of emotions, including love, jealousy, rivalry, competition, and loyalty. These are complex emotions that provide rich material for storytelling and character development. Family dynamics are a microcosm of societal structures. The sibling rivalries can mirror broader themes of power struggles, conflicts, and alliances that occur within larger communities and societies. The intensity of emotions and conflicts in sibling rivalries allow for an in-depth exploration of the character psychology and motivations and can delve into the depths of human behavior and emotions. Stories involving siblings often allow audiences to vicariously experience emotions and conflicts they might face in their own lives, and they are cathartic experiences that can lead to greater self-awareness and understanding. They can also work magnificently as symbolism. They can symbolize broader themes, such as the struggle between good and evil, the clash between tradition and change, or the tension between individual desires and societal expectations. They are also timeless and always relevant. Human nature and relationships have remained relatively constant throughout history. Stories involving sibling rivalries transcend time and culture because they explore enduring themes of the human behavior and can obviously provide excellent entertainment and possibilities within the story. The dramatic tensions and conflicts inherent in sibling rivalries make for compelling storytelling. Audiences were, are, and always will be drawn to narratives that are emotionally charged and filled with suspense. Last but certainly not least, many of these stories impart moral lessons about the consequences of jealousy, betrayal, revenge, and unchecked ambition. They serve as cautionary tales that often insight into human behavior and decision-making. Overall, these stories in folklore and literature speak to their enduring relevance and the depth of human experiences they explore. By delving into the complexities of family relationships, these stories offer insight into universal themes and provide a lens through which to examine broader societal dynamics as well as individual feelings and troubles. George Martin is a writer who taps into all of these individual and societal issues in all his works and in A Song of Ice and Fire especially, simply because of the sheer size of the project. Some of the very famous stories about brothers knowingly killing each other are Cain and Abel, Eteocles and Polynikis, Atreus and Thiestis, Romulus and Remus, Seth and Osiris, Porex and Ferex, Absalon and Amnon, Claudius and King Hamlet, and I'm even gonna add Margot Verger and Mason from Hannibal Lecter. All fratricides work as a catalyst for larger scale issues. And we see the same in the novels too. Stannis killed Randley and his morals started to noticeably shift. 
Even though quite a few of the fans do not want to admit it, Stannis is also very much responsible for many of the actions his side took that went wrong. When he wants to stop Mel, he can. We have seen it more than once. And many times he chooses to follow these pieces of advice, making him a progressively morally flawed character and very much responsible for most of his problems. Stannis might not have been exactly aware of what Mel had in mind, but he sent her in knowing that he wasn't going to just drink tea with Renly. This is why Stannis is such a great character, because of his flaws. During the dance, we saw Kinslaying in various forms, and it all started because of sibling rivalry. Along with much other stuff, I know, but the siblings are the central characters. After a long and very bloody civil war, which the kingdom suffered through, both siblings died and Kinslaying was practiced and in the end all the dragons died out. And even though they were not siblings, Aemond killing Lucerys, meaning practicing Kinslaying, was the official trigger for the war. George Martin puts Kinslaying very often in all the A Song of Ice and Fire series, in all of the timelines, real events, myths and songs. And that brings me to Euron and Victarion and their dynamic. Euron is the second oldest of the brothers and the oldest one alive. He is described as very handsome, the most good-looking of all Quellan's sons, something that is pointed out in the first description we get of him. And the crow's eye, Euron Greyjoy. He looks unchanged, Victarion thought. He looks the same as he did the day he laughed at me and left. Euron was the most comely of Lord Quellan's son, and three years of exile had not changed that. His hair was still black as a midnight sea, and never a weight cup to be seen, and his face was still smooth and pale beneath a neat black beard. A black leather patch covered Euron's left eye, but his right was blue as a summer sky. His smiling eye, thought Victarion. For the first moment we get an interaction between them, it is fairly easy to pick up on the saltiness of Victarion towards his brother. Here we see the most important theme phrase that Victarion uses to point out all the time how he feels about Euron. The day he laughed at me. A big reason for all the hostility is the fact that Victarion feels like Euron undermines and mocks him all the time. Victarion Greyjoy mistrusted laughter. The sound of it always left him with an uneasy feeling that he was the part of some jade he did not understand. Euron Crozai had oft made mock of him when they were boys. So had Aeron before he had become the dampier. Their mockery oft came disguised as praise, and sometimes Victarion had not even realized he was being mocked. Not until he heard the laughter. Then came the anger, boiling up in the back of his throat, until he was like to choke upon the taste. That was how he felt about the monkeys. Their antics never brought so much a smile on the captain's face, though his crew would roar and hoot and whistle. Even before the cheating thing, Victarion had a problem with Euron. He was feeling inferior to him, dumb. He feels like Euron wasn't still is tormenting him just for laughs, and he takes joy in doing so too. And looking at Euron, it is obvious he does exactly that. He's canning and mocking, and even though he doesn't have the best reputation, he is described as having a glib tongue and having no problem attracting men and followers. To comment on the obvious, I do not think Euron was ever very stable, and he certainly isn't stable at all right now. He consumes aid of the evening regularly to the point that his lips have turned blue, and we learned in A Feast for Crows that when he was a boy, he had a dream that he could fly. People with dreams and visions become unstable more easily, even more if they are not okay from the start. I don't believe these dreams are the sole uh, reason for his personality, but they haven't helped the situation either. It looks like he is taking pleasure in tormenting people, he enjoys it when people are afraid of him. In the Forsaken chapter, we see many weird stuff, and not just in visions either, but for me still the most disturbing thing is the fact that apparently Euron used to sexually abuse both Aeron and Urigon just to make them afraid of him. 
It is me who taught you how to pray, little brother, have you forgotten? I would visit your bedchamber at night when I had too much to drink. You shared the room with Urigon, high up in the sea tower. I could hear you praying from outside the door. I always wondered, were you praying that I would choose you or that I would pass you by? By the way, this is a part of the Forsaken chapter which I feel isn't talked about enough. And that's crazy to me. It is so telling of Euron's character. He wants to torment people. He is commenting and remembers the fact that his brothers were afraid and praying. That was what he liked. He felt powerful. He felt like a god. It is the same thing he is commented on in Feast. Godless? Why, Aaron? I am the godliest man ever to raise sail. You serve one god down here, but I have certain thousand. From Ib to Asai, when men see my sails, they pray. Their little gods cannot stop me. So plainly they are false god. I am more devout than even you, Aaron. Perhaps it should be you who kneels to me for blessing. And let's not forget that he explicitly said, Kneel, brother. I am your king. I am your god. Worship me, and I will raise you to be my priest. The way he is talking, it is obvious he considers himself a god. He isn't like Aaron, who is a priest, who is himself devout. He is talking like he is above them all. One of the reasons people believe in gods is because of fear. And this is exactly what Euron sees. He has power when people are afraid. Mocking Victarion and tormenting Aaron and Uri was and still is a way for him to feel powerful above them and manipulate them, and it is obvious from the stories we get. When he was younger, he did it even more often, and he knows what triggers each and every one of them. He didn't try the same tricks with Victarion as with Aaron and Durigon. First of all, because Victarion had the physical advantage, but he knew how to make him angry, how to make him feel less and bad about himself. He knew his fears. And now it is finally time to address what happened with Victarion's salt wife. Looking at the way Euron operates, it is obvious he persuaded Victarion's wife to torment his brother. He understands that Vicky's biggest insecurity, the thing that really makes him afraid, is feeling less and stupid, feeling like he is not enough, and that people laugh at his expense. Euron had sex and impregnated Victarion's wife, Victarion killed her and was very close to killing Euron too, and the reason that didn't happen is the fact that Balon stopped Victarion and then he exiled Euron. There is a missing piece of information from this story, and this is whether Euron raped her or she willingly slept with him. I asked why he went, not where. When he did not answer, Asha said, I was away when silence sailed. I had taken back wind around the arbor to the stepstones to steal a few trinkets from the Lyceni pirates. When I came home, Euron was gone and your new wife was dead. She was only a salt wife. He had not touched another woman since he gave her to the crabs. Walk amongst the cook fires, if you dare, and listen. They are not telling tales of your strength, nor of my famous beauty. They talk only of the crow's eye, the far places he has seen, the women he has raped, and the men he's killed, the cities he has sacked, the way he burned Lord Tywin's fleet at Lannisport. I burned the lion's fleet, Victarion insisted. With my own hands, I flung the first torch to his flagship. The crow's eye had the seam. Asa put her hand upon his arm, and killed your wife as well, did he not? Balon had commanded them not to speak of it, but Balon was dead. He put a baby in her belly and made me do the killing. I would have killed him too, but Balon would have no kin slaying in his hall. He sent Euron to exile, never to return, so long as Balon lived. Victarion looked at his fists. She gave me horns, I had no choice. Had it been known, men would have laughed at me. As the crow's eye laughed when I confronted him. She came to me wet and willing, he had boasted. It seems Victarion is big everywhere, but where it matters. But he could not tell her that. I am sorry for you, Sadasa, and sorrier for her. First of all, let's have a look at the obvious here. Victarion isn't the best person, and what's more, 
he isn't a very good partner. His wife was a salt wife, so she was most likely taken unwillingly during a raid. And judging from the way Victarion interacts with the dusky woman, it seems certain that he was violent and used to force himself on her whenever. Even George Martin describes Victarion as a brute. So when Victarion learned about the infidelity, he killed her, and the reason Euron wasn't also killed is the fact that Balon stopped them. He is violent, he cannot hold his anger, and when ridiculed, his first instinct is violence. Obviously, the fact that the Ironborn have the culture they have didn't help his case, but it is obvious from what we see in his chapters and other Ironborn chapters that Victarion snaps very often. He isn't a legit psychopath like Euron, and maybe if he had grown up under different circumstances, he wouldn't be a bad person. But with things being as they are, Victarion isn't a man any woman would like to be involved with. And even if he had never been violent against her or anything before, she still was a salt wife who most likely didn't like him like that, she just didn't have any other option. On the other side, we have Euron, who is handsome and he can definitely love Bomba Woman, as we see him do with Thalia. In the Forsaken chapter, up until the last minute, where we see her with her tongue cut out and ready to be sacrificed, she was saying to Aaron that Euron loves her and he is gonna make her a queen, and so on. And this is why I'm fairly sure Euron didn't rape Vic's wife, but he persuaded her so he could cheat on Victarion with him. He put a baby in her belly and made me do the killing. Euron knew that Victarion would kill her. He knew that there was no way he was going to live knowing that people would talk. From what I understand, Euron sweet-talked her so she could have sex with him, and then he went and said to Victarion, Huh, I fucked your wife and made her pregnant and like you, and she liked it. She came willingly, and she also said you have a small pee-pee. And wait till everyone learns about this when the pregnancy starts showing. Everyone will have a laugh like I'm having one right now. And Victarion just snapped and had a breakdown. Euron wanted Victarion to both have a breakdown and also kill his wife. Something that we know Victarion is still thinking about all the time. Yes, because he was ashamed he was cheated on, but from what I understand, he had some genuine feelings for her too. Not healthy ones, don't get me wrong, this is certain, but feelings nonetheless. Yet when he tried to picture her, he only saw the wife he'd killed. He had sobbed each time he struck her, and afterward carried her down to the rocks to give her to the crabs. He shames Hewitt as he once shamed me, the captain thought, remembering how his wife had sobbed as he was beating her. The men of the four seals of married one another, he knew, just like the Ironbore did. One of these naked serving wenches might well be Sir Talbert Seri's wife. It was one thing to kill a foe, another to dishonor him. Victarion made a fist. His hand was bloody where his wound was soaked through the linen. I want none of your livings, he had told his brother scornfully. But when the crow's eyes said that the woman would be killed unless he took her, he had weakened. He does consider both his salt wife and the dusky woman, as well as the women from the shields, more property than anything else, because as I said, Victarion is not a good person and is also an ironborn. But he also seems to feel guilty. And Euron knows that Victarion feels guilty, that he probably made him kill a woman he had feelings for. And this is exactly what he wanted to do and took pleasure in doing so. He can read Victarion very easily and triggers him to do what he wants. And I'm pretty sure that is what Victarion meant when he thought that all Euron's gifts are poison. Many people in the fandom say that, oh, Euron told the dusky woman to poison Victarion's wound, etc, etc. And even though I don't think that's out of character for Euron, I also do not think this is the case. Euron right now needs Victarion to bring Danny to Westeros, because this is the most important thing for him right now. And even though Vicky mistrusts him and wants to kill him, he still does what Euron wants to some extent, and the reason is that Euron knows how to manipulate him. 
This is why his gifts are poison. He told him, you did your job good for our brother and you will do it for me, except if you cannot. He knows that if he says you are useless to Victorion, Victorion will do it because he wants to prove himself. He gave him a woman knowing that Victorion would think about him all the time because of her. She would remind him of his late wife. Victorion thinks of Euron 90% of the time. The gift worked as a poison since the only thing they did was make Victorion progressively more and more obsessed with Euron, and they were given to him to mock him. They poison his mind, they do not need to be literal poison. For love, for duty, because your king commands it, Euron chuckled. And for the Seastone chair, it is yours once I claim the Iron Throne. You shall follow me as I follow Balon, and your own trueborn sons shall one day follow you. My own sons. But to have a trueborn son, a man must first have a wife. Victorion had no luck with wives. Euron's gifts are poisoned, he reminded himself, but still. The choice is yours, brother. Live a thrall or die a king. Do you dare to fly? Unless you take the leap, you'll never know. Euron's smiling eye was bright with mockery. Or do I ask to mask of you? It is a fearsome thing to sell beyond Valyria. I would sell the Iron Fleet to hell if need be. When Victorion opened his hand, his palm was red with blood. I'll go to Slaver's Bay, I. I'll find this dragon woman and I'll bring her back. But not for you. You stole my wife and spoiled her, so I'll have yours. The fairest woman in the world. For me. Euron constantly undermines him, mocks him, and manipulates him. Victarion is thinking of heirs and sons, yes, but his biggest problem is that he doesn't have a wife by his side. It is kind of sad, but I think in reality Victarion wants someone to be with him by choice more than anything. He has the same problem Theon had. He wants to feel good enough and he wants someone to choose him. And the reason I'm quite sure he doesn't want to just take some woman and wants the woman to go with him willingly is the way he acts in Slaver's Bay. He wants to win the war for Danny. he's capturing and killing slavers, and he's kind of <laughs> releasing slaves so he can impress Daenerys. In his mind, he freed the slaves, even though he didn't. He healed them and prostitutes, and the rest of them were made part of his crew, whether they wanted to or not. It's not like he asked. Yes, they would be getting paid from the raids, like all Ironborn, but still, he didn't ask them. They weren't free to choose. The women were taken to be salt wives, again without consent, so how much of a change was it really? And let's not forget that he sacrificed seven of them for good luck. He is trying way too hard to do what he thinks Danny would do or want to do, so he can impress her. He wants her to be on his side of her own will. He doesn't do things because they are the right thing to do, he doesn't get the concept at all, but he tries his hardest to do what he thinks Daenerys would like. And that brings me to the one very important kinslaying in A Song of Ice and Fire I left out before. Bloodstone killing his sister, the Amethyst Empress. When the daughter of the Opal Emperor succeeded him as the Amethyst Empress, her envious younger brother cast her down and slew her, proclaiming himself the Bloodstone Emperor and beginning a reign of terror. He practiced dark arts, torture and necromancy, enslaved his people, took a tiger woman for his bride, feasted on human flesh and cast down the true god to worship a black stone that had fallen from the sky. In the annals of the Further East, it was the Blood Betrayal, as his usurpation is named, that ushered in the Age of Darkness called the Long Night. Despairing of the evil that had been unleashed on Earth, the Maiden Maid of Light turned her back upon the world, and the Lion of Night came forth in all his wrath to punish the wickedness of men. Kinslaying, specifically sibling killing sibling, is the reason for the Long Night, an idea that exists in the most popular apocalyptic real-life myth, Ragnarok. 
and The Long Night is inspired by it, along with other apocalyptic myths from various cultures. In the Veluspa, the best-known poem of the poetic Edda, one of the indicators signaling the world's impending doom is a rise in fratricides. Black become the sunbeams in the summer that follows, weathers all treacherous. Do you still seek to know? And what? Brothers will fight and kill each other. Sisters' children will defile kinship. And the most important one of these fratricides was Hedrick killing Baldur. Baldur is mostly remembered for how he died. That event is the first step in a series of things that lead to Ragnarok. The best-known version of the story is in the Poetic Edda. When he started to have ominous dreams of his demise, the fearful gods appointed Odin to discover the meaning. Baldur's mother made him invincible, and the only thing that could hurt him was the mistletoe. Loki got wind of this and created a special spear from the plant, or sometimes an arrow. He rushed over to where the gods were having fun tossing things at Baldur, things that wouldn't hurt him, so Loki handed the spear to Baldur's brother, Hedrick, who was blind, and unfortunately, accidentally used it to harm and kill his own brother. Like in the story they have on Yeti about the long night, Kinslaying is the first step to the upcoming doom. The second best-known version of the story comes from Gesta Danorum, the history of the Danes, and is significantly different. Unlike Snorri's portrayal, Saxo's version shows Hodor as an active character, more fitting of his name's meaning, which is warrior. According to Saxo, Hodor, here Hother, and Baldur, referred as Baldur, raised armies and fought over a beautiful woman named Nana. Baldur was a demigod and in some versions was also nourishing himself with a magical spiritual broth the Nords provided, so nothing could wound him. In the conflict, Odin and Thor sided with Baldur, of course, in a battle against Hother, but they were defeated, as Hother won the favor of the people and forced Baldur to flee. Driven by his obsession with Nana, Baldur later exiled Hother, however, and Hother, aided by luck, he is still defying Tunic and the help of the Wood Maidens, most likely referring to the Norns, who provided him with the mystical items, eventually confronted Baldur and fatally wounded him in the side, so Baldur's death occurred as prophesied in his dream. We see that both of these versions have a lot of similarities with the story we see in the novels, most likely because George Martin himself knows quite well and enjoys Norse mythology. In Dream Songs, he said, My sophomore year, I signed up for the history of Scandinavia, thinking it would be cool to study Vikings. We read Norse sagas, Icelandic Eddas, and the poets of the Finnish patriotic poet Johann Ludwig Runeberg. I love the sagas and the Eddas, which reminded me of Tolkien and Howard. Norse mythology references and similarities are everywhere in the story, but specifically these two versions of Baldur's death parallel both the relationship between Victarion and Euron, but also the Long Night and the Blood Betrayal. In our story, Victarion was with his salt wife, Euron slept with her, and before Victarion could kill him, he was exiled from the Isles. Now, like Baldur, Euron came back and is his king of the Isles, with Victarion being sent away by him, but Victarion is planning his return, so he can take the Seastone chair and, of course, the beautiful maid, who in our story is Daenerys. And like Hodor, he also has magical aid by his side. Mokoro, who maybe didn't give him a still-defined tunic, but he did give him a new invincible magic arm. The Ironborn storyline is very important in the books, and I still remember the time when a sizable portion of the fans didn't care about it and said it was useless and no one cares. But first of all, I care. They are by far some of the best chapters. And two, they are very important ones, and we do have so many POVs from them. Victarion vs. Euron working as a catalyst for the official beginning of the Long Night not only makes sense with Martin's writing, since he likes to parallel older stories, myths and songs with current events, but is also on par with Euron's and Victarion's character, 
and we have a great amount of setup to work narrative-wise for compelling storytelling. So let's break down all these reasons one by one. First of all, the only reason Victarion didn't kill Euron and still doesn't kill Euron is the superstition around kinslaying and because he respected Balon. The kinslayer is accursed in the eyes of gods and men, Balon reminded him on the day he sent the crow's eye off to the sea. He drank in the darkness, brooding on his brother. If I do not strike the blow with my own hands, am I still a kinslayer? Victarion feared no man, but the drowned god's curse gave him pause. If another strikes him down at my command, will his blood still stain my hands? Aaron Dampier would know the answer, but the priest was somewhere back on the Iron Islands, still hoping to raise the Ironborn against their new crown king. He would give half his teeth for the chance to try his axe against the Kingslayer of the Knight of Flowers. That was the sort of battle that he understood. The Kingslayer was accursed in the eyes of God and men, but the warrior was honored and revered. This voyage was cursed from the first. The crow's eye fears you, my lord. Why else send you so far away? He does not meant for us to return. Victarion had all the same when he met the first storm a day out of Old Volantis. The gods hate Kingslayers, he brooded, elsewise Euron Crow's eye would have died a dozen deaths by my hand. Victarion is thinking of Euron every single time he kills someone or thinks about people he has already killed. Hell, there are passages where he just looks at his hands and thinks of killing him. But the first time Victarion thinks of Kinslaying is different. It is the moment where the idea of killing his brother stops being just a wish, but something he is constantly thinking about and trying to find ways to go around, like sending someone else. Words are wind, Victarion told them, and the only good wind is that which fills our sails. Would you have me fight the Krausai, brother against brother, Ironborn against Ironborn? Euron was still his elder, no matter how much bad blood might be between them. No man is as accursed as the Kinslayer. But when the dump here summons came, the call to Kingsmoot, then all was changed. Aaron speaks with the drowned god voice, Victarion reminded himself. And if the drowned god wills that I should see the Seastone chair... Here he is still hesitant about killing his brother, who is also Ironborn and the drowned god prohibits both killings. But at the same time, he is commenting on how a priest commands him to go against Euron to Kingsmoot. So maybe it isn't as big of a curse as he thought. Victarion falls under the same archetype as Stannis, Daemon, Aemond, Maegor, that of Bloodstone, the envious second sibling who in the end always commit kinslaying. Victarion's whole arc leads precisely there, him killing Euron. And in all of these instances, the moment the kinslaying occurs, things just get more heated. Aemond officially started the dance. After the battle above the god's eye came the storm of the dragon pit, where most of the dragons died, which led to their extinction. Maegor killed Aegon the Uncrowned, and then we saw both his tyranny and his downfall. Stannis killed Renly right before the Blackwater, which was a huge failure on his side, and of course Bloodstone killed Amethyst and the Long Night began. It is obviously a pattern, and Victarion is heading down this road. And that brings us to Euron, whose death is destined to start the Long Night. I know that people link Euron to Bloodstone, but I would argue that he is not. Euron is already a king, he was chosen as a king, he is the oldest, and he was never jealous. Not even of Balon, who was older than him. And lastly, Bloodstone, unlike Euron, was devout. Like Stannis and Vicky. He cast down the true gods to worship a black stone that had fallen from the sky. Many scholars count the Bloodstone Emperor as the first priest of the sinister Church of Starry Wisdom, which persists to this day in many port cities throughout the known world. Stannis took a new god, and Victarion believes in the lore right now, too. Euron doesn't fit that archetype all that well. 
Euron is the crow's eye, the first storm and the last. He is like Robert. People sing him praises. He has multiple kids and women. And his people like him, even though he is not a good person. Robert was a literal storm king. And in all the other stories, the person that dies has similar traits. Robert dies and the war of the five kings begins. Renly is again a storm lord. Maegor killed a person that people wanted and liked, the eldest son of Aenys. Aemon killed Lucerys during a storm, and on paper, Lucerys was related to Rhaenys, and by extension to House Baratheon, Lords of the Stormlands. And Daemon killed the one-eyed son with a sapphire in the socket, blue as a summer sky. Euron's death will be the catalyst for the Long Night. Let's not forget that he thinks he will be reborn in the New World. The Bleeding Star bespoke the end, he said to Aeron. These are the last days, and when the world shall be broken and remade, a new god shall be born from the graves and charnered pits. He thinks he is that god, and I'm fairly sure he thinks that he will die and be born once again, something that I do not think is the case, by the way. Though they may arise in many seasons, seafarers say that the worst of them come each autumn. And we see that in our story too, storms are at their worst before the winter. Even in the novel's titles, we have a storm of swords, a feast for crows, a dance with dragons, and then the winds of winter. The storm must die, like in every story, like the worst of normal autumn storms. As for his rebirth, in my humble opinion, this is something that will not happen. Euron is a classic example of a character that is gonna be destroyed by his own Ivris. I will have a full video on Euron, maybe it's gonna be the next one, where I will talk about the Forsaken chapter and make a full-on character analysis and explain in detail what archetype I think he falls under in our story. But in short, Euron's arc demonstrates the danger of Ivris and the importance of humility. Ivris leads to the disruption of the natural order, something Euron actively tries to pursue, and in response brings forth an inescapable nemesis, the vengeance of the gods and nature. Now let's back to the Ragnarok and the first thing to break in the chain, Baldur's death. In Gesta Danorum, we are told that one of the reasons Hodur was successful in killing Baldur was a still-defined tunic. He wouldn't be able to kill Baldur otherwise, since he was invincible and was also nourishing himself with a magic broth. The parallels here are undeniable, I think. Euron not only drinks shade of the evening constantly, but he also has a full Valyrian steel armor set that makes him practically invincible. Victarion has the magical aid from Okoro, he will most definitely return with Daenerys, so they will have dragons too, and I think he too will have his own still-defined tunic. Kind of. Victarion had no patience for this. His wooded hand was troubling him. They are all the same, these magic men. The mouse warned me of pain as well. I am Ironborn Priest. I laugh at pain. You will have what you required. But if you fail and my hand is not healed, I will cut your throat myself and give you to the sea. Mokoro bowed, his dark eyes shining. So be it. The Iron Captain was not seen again that day. But as the hours passed, the crew of his Iron Victory reported hearing the sound of wild laughter coming from the captain's cabin. Laughter dark and deep and mad. And when Longwater Pike and Wolf Oanai tried the captain's door, they found it barred. Later singing was heard, a strange high wailing song in a tongue that the maester said was High Valyrian. The arm the priest had healed was hideous to look upon, pork crackling from elbow to fingertips. Sometimes when Victorian closed his hand, the skin would split and smoke, yet the arm was stronger than it had ever been. The thing Mokoro did made Victorian's arm stronger, inhumanly strong and durable. And I think Victarion will be more than okay with letting Mokoro do the same on whatever wounds he take in the second season of Mirin, since we know from Tyrion's Winds chapter that the fleet has arrived there for the fight. 
Not only does it make sense for him, since he was ecstatic when his hand was healed, but it will also parallel another Ironborn of old, Balon Blackskin. Most infamous of all was Balon Blackskin, who fought with an axe in his left hand and a hammer in his right. No weapon made of man could harm him, it was said. Swords glanced off and left no mark, and axes shattered against his skin. To me, that sounds not just possible, but almost certain. I mentioned it in my video about the volcanic iron islands, but what Mokoro did sounds like Balon Blackskin almost to a T. The second biggest parallel with Ragnarok comes from the Veluspa. Fast move the sons of Mim and Fate. Is heard in the note of the Jalarhorn. Loud blows Heimdall, the horn is aloft. In fear quake all who on hell roads are. This is not the first time in the poem where Jalarhorn is mentioned. As we see, the sound of Heimdall's horn will herald the beginning of Ragnarok, and its sound will be heard in all corners of the world. Earlier in the same poem, we see the horn being mentioned again. I know of the horn of Heimdall, hidden under the high-reaching holy tree. On it there pours from all father's pledge, a mighty stream. Would you know yet more? As we see here, the announcement of the doom will come with the sound of a magical war horn that everyone will hear. The gods will awake and assemble together with the sound of the horn to face their enemy. Now, the name of the horn most likely means Horn of the River Gjol, as Gjol is the um, name of one of the rivers of the underworld, whence much wisdom is held to derive. And it kind of corresponds with the wells in the roots of Yggdrasil too. In another passage, we are told that one of the three roots of Yggdrasil reaches the well of Mimir and contains much wisdom and intelligence. Using Yalarhorn, Heimdall drinks from the well and thus is himself wise. I have talked in my wells video that the concept of the weirwoods follow this. Under Brand's cave, meaning under the weirwoods, there is water and the description we get is reminiscent of a well since Mira was using a rope to go and fish. The singers made Bran a throne of his own, like the one Lord Brynden sat, white weirwood flecked with red, dead branches woven through living roots. They placed it in the grate covered by the abyss, where the black air echoed to the sound of running water far below. Mira gave him a mournful look. The river was 600 feet below, down steep slope and twisty passages, she explained, and the last part required climbing down a rope. Men should not go wandering in this place, Liv warned them. The river you hear is swift and black and flows down and down to a sunless sea, and there are passages to go even deeper. Bottomless pits and sudden shafts, forgotten ways that lead to the very center of the earth. Even my people have not explored them all, and we have lived here for a thousand thousand of your man years. In my horns video, I said I am fairly sure the horns conduct a force from underneath. The Horn of Winter is for sure somehow connected with the wall and the weirwoods. Considering the very living weirwood door at Nightford has as a key the phrase I am the watcher on the walls, I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, I am the shield that guards the realm of men. The Horn of Yoramun, I believe, like the Horn of Heimdall, announces the winter to everyone. And if the horn wakes the sleepers, then Euron is the perfect character to play the enemy. We even saw him in Aaron's vision with all the gods dead around him. As for Dragonbinder, I think it must have a similar job. Controlling volcanoes or the fires deep inside planets in general, it sounds way more plausible than bonding with a dragon. I have explained my take fully on why it is kind of meh and stupid to control just a dragon. But the most important reason for me is the fact that they call it Hellhorn. They were told his name was Dragonbinder and what they believe it does. And people still call it Hellhorn and Horn of Hell. 14 or 40,000. What manders count them? 
It is not wise for mortal to look too deep into those fires, my friend. Those are the fires of God's own wrath, and no human flame can match them. We are small creature, men. The fires of God's wrath, as Mokoro called the fourteen flames, are pretty much hell. They are even described as having hearts of fire. In any case, I will not talk about the horns more because I have a full video already, but yeah, if I had to take a guess, they will do something very important and most likely catastrophic. About Euron and Victarion though, the main battle will happen 99% in Old Town, with the forces of Vicky and Euron clashing. I think we will see a naval battle, we will see Euron trying to complete whatever blood magic ritual is preparing, and the realization that he isn't as mighty and powerful as he thinks. After all, we are small creatures, men. Both horns are gonna be blown and we will finally learn what the hell they are for. I can easily see Victarion having enough of Euron after learning about Aeron's death and indeed killing him in the battle, with him either staying alive for a little bit more or being killed in the process too. Even more, if heavy magic is involved and the horns indeed cause physical catastrophes as I think they do. The possibility of Victarion staying alive for a long time after it is very small, but he will most definitely kill Euron. All in all, the last stand of Euron and Victarion will end with the death of both brothers, with both magical horns being blown, officially starting the long night. This is the battle that starts the big game. I believe we will see it somewhere after the middle of winds, even closer to the end of the book, with the biggest part of A Dream of Spring being about the resolution of the long night, because I really think that Winds of Winter is about the winter officially arriving, more than it is about ending or processing. Winds is gonna be about the long night starting and about our main players learning useful information so they can solve the issue in dream. This is it for this upload. I think I've said everything I wanted to say. Leave a comment with your ideas and theories as well as opinions about the video. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to like and subscribe if you haven't already. Thanks a lot for watching and until the next one, bye!